you find uh, Joshua chapter 1, and uh, we now, having done the introduction, move into the actual text, and uh, we'll be doing the, the whole of chapter 1 tonight. Um, in this, we're going to see three things. Um, we're firstly going to see verses 1 to 9, the Lord speaking to Joshua. We're going to see what God says to Joshua. Then secondly, verses 10 to 15, we're going to see what Joshua then said to the people. And then lastly, in uh, the last few verses, we're going to see what the people said to Joshua. So there, there's the three things. Right at the beginning, all right, you know, we're right at the start of the story of the taking of the Promised Land. We're going to see what God says to Joshua then what Joshua says to the people, and then what the people say to Joshua. And of course, that, that, that order is incredibly important, uh, because of course you can only pass on yourself to others what you have received first from the Lord. So Joshua had nothing to say to anyone until God had said something to him. And, and, and of course that, that must be the order in our own lives as well, and particularly in regards to leadership, because of course you can only exercise any kind of authority in the Lord to the extent that you yourself are under authority in the Lord. And, um, you know, so, so therefore this, this order, the Lord speaks to Joshua, then Joshua speaks to the people, and then we'll see their response to him. But we'll, um, we'll be back to, to that particular point about the importance of, of, of that order later. But uh, let's, let's dive into the, the first section and actually see, see what God says to Joshua. So we're going to read, um, read the first nine verses. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I am about to give to them to the Israelites. I will give you every place where you set your foot, as I promised Moses. Your territory will extend from the desert to Lebanon and from the great river, the Euphrates, or the Hittite country, to the great sea on the west. No one will be able to stand up against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you, nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous, because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their forefathers to give them. Be strong and very courageous, be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left. It's because obviously means you vote Liberal Democrat, doesn't it? That you may be successful wherever you go. Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. 
do not be terrified, do not be discouraged, for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. So the first thing that the Lord says, he says, Joshua, Moses is dead, go into the land. And of course we saw last time the imagery here, the picture of going into the promised land. Fullness of life in Christ, coming into everything that God has for you. Certainly it's spiritual warfare, but also it's a picture of the Lord working out in our lives, the new life in Jesus that he's given to us. And uh, really the idea to, you know, to grasp here is that the Lord is saying to them, I've given you a land, go in and possess it. And growing in the Christian life, um, you know, growing in the Lord, coming into the life of holiness really is possessing what God has given us. He has given us a new life and he says, go in and possess it. And a lot of this book is going to be showing us how we go about growing in the Lord and coming into everything that the Lord has actually uh, given to us. But of course the important thing here, firstly, is realising that Moses is dead. I mean, we touched on this last time, didn't we? But it's vitally important, because of course Moses was the law. In John's Gospel we're told the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And of course the point about Moses, the point about the law, is Moses could get the people of Israel out of Egypt, the law convicts you of sin, you realise that you need Jesus, you get born again. So the law does its job, it shows you how much you need Jesus. But to that extent, once you've come to the Lord and you're born again, growing in the Lord, living the Christian life, is never a question of law, it's purely a question of grace from beginning to end. So Moses could get the people out of Egypt, but he couldn't get them in to the Promised Land. That took Joshua. Moses dies in the wilderness, we're dead to the law. Joshua, we saw last time, his name is Yeshua, it's Jesus. It's Jesus who gets you in, alright? The law comes through Moses, but grace and truth comes through Jesus Christ. And you see, the reason is that the law, if living the Christian life was to do with Moses, if it was to do with the law, that would all be our own strength, our own efforts. It would all be down to what we can do. But of course, as we're going to be seeing here, they're going into the promised land and God has given it to them. It's a gift. It's already theirs. They don't have to do anything to earn it. It's already there. All they've got to do is go and take it. And so in this book, we're going to be seeing, uh, you know, sort of like, well, how then do you get into the Promised Land? We're Christians, but how do we grow in the Lord? How do we actually get in? All right, that's the picture, Israel going into the Promised Land, pushing out the enemy as they go, and coming into the inheritance, the possession that God has given to them. So how is it, here's Moses, uh, Joshua, still in the wilderness, about to go into the Promised Land, so how? Do we actually do it? And in verse 3, God says, I will give you every place where you set your foot. And that is how we get in. That is how we grow in the Lord. I will give you every place where you set your foot. We grow in the Lord um, purely by faith, by believing what God has said and then acting on it. 
and God is here saying to them the land is yours because it's yours everywhere you put your foot down I'll give that bit of land to you so what they had to do was believe what God had said and then act on it by faith simply trusting him and so we grow in the Lord alright we grow in the Christian life simply by acting on the truth of God's word in effect God is saying the promised land is yours Israel it's all there that's why it's called the promised land Canaan it means the promised land that's why it was a promise from God he says it's there for you it's occupied by people who shouldn't be there their spiritual warfare but every place that you put your foot I'll push the enemy back and that will be yours so what God is saying it's yours go and take it simple as that acting on the truth of the Word of God and in Romans 6 Paul says this reckon yourselves that means count on it believe it just take it into account and act on it as being true reckon yourselves to be dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus now that is the truth the moment that we were born again we died to sin and we have the potential to live the new life in Jesus and to live out of the new nature and not to live out of the old nature that is simply a fact and we grow in the Christian life as more and more we're enabled by the Holy Spirit to do precisely that to reckon ourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God so that day by day in whatever situation we're in we don't respond out of the old nature that we've died to we respond out of the new nature that we have in the likeness of Jesus and that's the picture there's the promised land you put your foot down on it one step at a time and God said every little bit of ground you put your foot down on responding in faith to me simply because I've said it's yours every bit that you put your foot down on it you will find that that will be yours there will be victory as you do that in response to my word and of course this thing about putting your foot down I mean here they were literally you know marching into a land in front of them but of course this whole language of putting your foot down is is that of spiritual warfare remember the teaching of Jesus about you know trampling on scorpions and snakes remember Jesus said you will walk over all the power of the enemy and um, Paul's argument in Ephesians is he says that that Jesus has been lifted up and he's he's been you know like given the name over all names and, and Jesus is, is is absolutely at the top up there in the heavenlies alright now then everything is under his feet but we have been raised up with him in the heavenlies as well so what does that mean everything is under our feet as well so where is Satan he's under our feet because we're born again because we're disciples of Jesus and therefore how does victory over Satan come and you can't talk about sanctification without talking about victory over Satan because Satan's main attack in spiritual warfare is simply to tempt us to sin He's all the time saying, well, wouldn't it be a good idea to go with your old nature in this? That is the mainstay of spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare is wider than that, but our main daily wrestling with the principalities and powers 
is simply overcoming the temptations that they put to us in regards to sin. And so what we're seeing is that how do we overcome Satan? How do we grow in the Lord? How do we become sanctified, set free from the power of sin? We put our foot down on each bit of our lives, step by step, moving into the land, trampling over all the power of uh, Satan. And so, in exactly the same way that we were justified by faith, so we got justification, you're set free from the penalty of sin, so you're justified, which is justified, never sinned, all right, that's one aspect of salvation. In the future when we die, we're going to be glorified, we're going to be set free from the presence of sin, and we're going to be glorified, just like Jesus, and there'll be no sin in our lives at all. But in the meantime, between now, having been justified, and then, when we're glorified, the process is of sanctification, the Lord working to set us free from the power of sin in our lives. And just as we're justified by faith, we were offered a free gift and we took it. We're in exactly the same way, day by day, moment by moment, throughout the rest of our lives, we're justified, uh, sanctified in exactly the same way. We receive it by faith as a gift. God has said to Israel, there is the promised land. It's yours. All you've got to do is to go in and take it. You're receiving a free gift. Now, do you remember when we did uh, the series on covenants? And we saw that the new covenant is what was called in the ancient world a royal grant one. And in a royal grant, what happened was that the king who owned a bit of land or something, the person who owned land, decided that he wanted to give it to you. It was a royal grant. You didn't have to do anything to earn it. The king decided he'd give it to you. All right. So maybe he's got a little bit of land over here, a farm or a homestead or something like that, and he decides, right, here's a subject of mine. I want to make a royal grant covenant to him and give that bit of land to him. All right. You didn't have to do anything to earn it. But once it's been given to you, you then go in and possess it. And more for you if you don't. There's a lovely bit of land, it's yours. All you've got to do is go in and get it. You might have to leave behind a grotty bit of land that you've already got. Yes, that might be difficult, but it's there for you. Go and get it. And of course, that's exactly what is happening here in the promised land. God, who owns everything, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, he owned Canaan. It was his to give to whoever he wanted, and he decided that the Canaanites had blown it, all right? He says, right, you lot, you've had your time, you're out. I'm going to give it to the Israelites. And so God makes a royal grant. He said, here's the land, it's there for you. All you've got to do is go in and get it. You don't have to earn it. All you do is go in and get it. That's exactly the same for us. The the, the, the power to overcome sin has been given to us because Jesus and Father and the Holy Spirit live in us. It's there. That potential is there. We don't have to do anything to earn it. It's simply something that we grow into it. We take it one step at a time, putting our foot down on different parts of our lives 
as the Spirit leads. You don't do it all at once. Israel didn't do it all at once. They didn't march in and bang, the promised land was taken overnight. It took years, and that was God's plan. It was one bit at a time, and that is the same in our lives. And so the ministry of the Holy Spirit is, is simply to say, well, look, you know, here you are on your little plot of land, you know, this, this nasty little sinful plot of land that you've brought with you out of Egypt, as it were, and here's a wonderful land over there, all right? Or to put it another way, here's us with our filthy rags of sin, all right? And then the Holy Spirit says, look, over here is Jesus' robe of righteousness. It's yours. All you've got to do is take one set of clothes off and put the other set of clothes on, bit by bit, progressively. And it's the ministry of the Holy Spirit, as it were, to enable us, bit by bit, to do that to get out of the wilderness, as it were, and to start going into Canaan to possess everything that the Lord has uh, given to us. Uh, the problem is, often, and this is where spiritual warfare comes in, and this is one of the reasons why spiritual warfare is difficult and sometimes why we appear to be losing, is that the point is, we're being, we've been brought out from having been under Satan's feet in the non-Christian life, and now Satan's under our feet. But so often, the problem is that the sin involved in being under Satan's feet, it, 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 you know, it, it's often still very natural to us. You see, there's lots about the old life that, that we actually still like. And this is the problem. That, you know, I mean, it sounds, you know, right, here's your filthy rags, get them off and climb into Jesus' robe of righteousness, it's there. But remember, to get the new bit of land, you've got to be willing to leave your old bit of land. The problem is sometimes we like our old bit of land, don't we? And, and Satan keeps showing us how wonderful it is. Oh, it's lovely, lovely, lovely. All the time God was leading Israel through the wilderness into Canaan, what was Satan saying to them all the time? Go back to Egypt, Egypt's better. And all the time, Satan is directing us back to the old life because our sinful natures still hanker after that. And so therefore, in order to really grow in the Lord, there's this process of letting go of the things of the past that maybe we still, in our hearts, we like that sin. Well, of course we do, or we wouldn't do it anymore. And again, part of the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to bring us more and more so that we actually hate our sin. Do you remember Jesus said that, um, you know, that in this life you've got to hate your, your life? He's not saying about you've got to hate yourself and be down on yourself, but what he's saying, that old life of sin, we need to learn to hate it. You know, so that we realise how terrible sin is, and then that we're yearning. You know, it's, we sort of like, you know, hate this and we long to get into Canaan, and we're kind of, you know, like pay any price to do that, and, and, and that, that is part of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, to bring us to a hatred of our sin, so that more and more we're, we're kind of tearing off those filthy rags and, and putting on the, you know, the new life, the robe of righteousness that we have in Jesus. And of course, it's a fight against the enemy every step of the way, because here's the land, and God says, look, go into the land one step at a time, and it was there. But of course, Every step of the way was contested by the Canaanites. Now the Lord has said, look, every time you put your foot down, don't worry about them. They'll, they'll, they'll be pushed back before you. I'll take care of them. But nevertheless, you've still got to face the enemy every step of the way. And it's a wrestling match. 
it's a constant daily battle. Hence, Paul says, we wrestle not with flesh and blood, but against the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. Because the whole time, they're trying to stop us making progress and to keep us in that old life and block our path as you know in, into growing in the Lord. And then in, in verses 6 to 9, that the Lord having said, look, Joshua, there it is, go get it. The Lord then gives him various instructions as to, to, to how to do, how to go against, you know, about this. Saying, right, okay, I've told you what to do, go in and take the land, it's there for the taking, one step at a time. Now this is what you've got to do in order to actually accomplish it, alright? And so in those instructions that the Lord gives to Joshua, we've got, as it were, our part in it. We've, we've got the part that we have to play. It's a free gift. Holiness is a free gift. It's there for the taking. But nevertheless, we have to take it. It doesn't mean that we, therefore, we, you know, we grow holy by our own efforts. It's a free gift. But the point is, if you've been given a bit of land over here as a free gift, it means you've got to walk away from the old bit of land that you're on at the moment. So, therefore, there is a something for us to do in growing in the Lord. It's not being sanctified by our works, by our struggles, by our efforts. But obviously, there's something there for us to come into, so we've got to come into it. You know, we don't just sit back and say, oh, right, Lord, okay, it's all down to you. We've got our part to play. And these things that, that the Lord says to Joshua constitute the part that we've got to play. And uh, all these things that, that he now says to Joshua, they all concern the book of the law, which was simply how they then referred to the scriptures that they thus far had. I mean, up to this point, all they had were the books of Moses. I mean, Moses had finished writing the first five book of Moses, as it were. That's all they had. But the point is it concerns the book of the law for us, which simply means the scriptures. It's all to do with the word of God that he's given us. And um, in, in verse 7, God says to Joshua, be careful to obey all the law. Now, that is simply uh, God's way of saying to Joshua what a couple of thousand years or so later James wrote to some Christians when he said, be doers of the word and not hearers only. It's not just a question of reading the Bible and knowing the truth. Knowing the truth, you've got to act on the truth. But then, as we saw earlier, that's what faith is. Faith is acting on what is true. God has said, there's the land, go and get it. Faith is when you start going to get it. Faith isn't saying, oh, right, oh, it's there, it's there, it's there for me, and then staying exactly where you are. Faith is active. It's stepping out in obedience to what God says. And so, therefore, We've got to make sure that we're not just hearers of the word, but we're doers of the word as well. But firstly, if we're to do, as it were, the book of the law, if we're to actually act on what God has shown us in the Bible, it presupposes, firstly, that we have understanding of what the Bible teaches. That's, that, that's the first thing. You know, so I mean, obviously, it's, it's no use not growing in knowledge of the scriptures. And this is why Bible study is so important. We've, we've got to, you can't act on truth that you don't know. Therefore, all the time, in order to act on the truth, 
We've got to be growing in our knowledge of the truth. Now then, I say again, it's no use just growing in knowledge of the truth if you don't get around to acting on it. That would be stupid. But in order to act on it, you've got to be growing in the knowledge of the truth. So obviously, it's, it, it's vital, therefore, that all the time we're growing in um, our knowledge of, of the Word of God. But having grown, or assuming that we are growing in our knowledge of the Word of God, which I hope we are, nevertheless, it's vital for us to make sure that we are acting on it. That it's not just knowledge, head knowledge, but that it's truth that we're actively living our lives on and responding to it. Uh, if, you, if you go to, to, to Thessalonians, uh, just to give you an idea of um, you know, a little thing that, that, that Paul writes, just give you the idea here. This is what, what Paul expected of Christians he wrote to, and uh, we are among the Christians that he wrote to. Um, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 14. And uh, look at this, he says, If anyone does not obey our instructions in this letter, take special note of him. Do not associate with him in order that he may feel ashamed. Now, I mean, that is just Paul's way of saying, look, you know, we're not writing you these things for fun. We're writing you these things because this is the truth of God and this is what he wants, and you've got to make sure you're acting on it. I mean, he's not talking about, you know, I mean, we're, you know, we're all disobedient to the word of God, but he's talking here about people in the church who just doesn't matter, I don't care what the word of God is, they just completely, you know, take no notice of it. He's saying, no, no, you, you've got to live in obedience to the things that we're writing to you. And uh, so it is with us. Remember what, what Jesus said. He said, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. What is it we need to be set free from? The penalty of sin? No, we've been set free from that. The presence of sin? No, not down here. That's in the future. That's the other side of death, when we're glorified. What we need to be set free from, and this is what this series is all about, is the power of sin. That's what we need to be set free from. How are we going to be set free? Well, it's going to be the truth that sets us free. Acting on the truth of God's Word. And what is the truth of God's Word? That in actual fact, we do not have to be in bondage to sin at all. God has given us a new nature. We died to sin. That's a fact. To the extent we believe in it and act on it, it will be the case. Trouble is, we still love the old life of sin. So the ministry of the Holy Spirit all the time, bringing us to a, a kind of a hatred of that, so that more and more we love the ways of God, and therefore put our foot down on various things, and then what you were so totally in bondage to in regards to sin, you look back and think, hey, there's freedom there. I'm free of that. Well, then by then the law's shown you another bit of land that you've got to move on to, something you're not free of. But that's how it works, you see. Um, when Jesus prayed for the church, again in John, in chapter 17, his prayer was, Father, sanctify them, sanctification, being set free from the power of sin in our lives, sanctify them by your truth. So how are we set free from the power of sin in our lives? By the truth of the word of God. And then Jesus said, your word is truth. So therefore, it's absolutely vital that we are growing in our knowledge of the word of God and that we are acting on what the word of God actually says. And uh, I mean, in, in the Bible, 
what we have, as it were, is, I mean, I mean think of it like a, a, an architect's blueprint for a building. All right, someone wants to build an office block or, or something like that, or someone wants to build a house. Well, you get an architect in and you come up with a blueprint. And that blueprint tells the builders how to build that house. Well, the Bible is our blueprint for sanctification. The Bible is, if you like, the how-to of being sanctified. It's the truth that sets us free. But whenever we grow in knowledge of the how-to, it's vital that we then go on to actually do it. It's not just the knowing the truth. It's not just the believing the truth of God's Word. It's the positive response of obedience to God's Word. What good would it have done Israel at this point to be sitting there the wrong side of Jordan for another hundred years saying, oh, Canaan is ours, the Lord's given it to us, whoopee, isn't this wonderful? And not doing what God said, which was go across the Jordan and actually go in and take it. Can you see? Believing it is not enough, it's acting on it. If you go to um, Ephesians, and uh, remember last time we we noted the, um, you know, that sort of really Ephesians is the New Testament counterpart to um, Joshua, you know, the book of spiritual warfare, as it were. And um, if you just, just go to, to Ephesians and, and, and find, or find chapter 1, but I want to just, just quickly show you the, the, the pattern, if you like, that Paul used when he wrote Ephesians, and it's uh, a pattern that he repeats in quite a few of the letters that he writes, and it's a very important pattern, it tells us something in itself, and that what happens from Ephesians chapter 1 right through to chapter 3 and verse 13, you have um, a, a kind of a massive statement from Paul of what God has accomplished for us through Jesus, through his coming, through his death, through his being raised from the dead and through him ascending into heaven. And that what Paul does, I mean, he, he talks about how we were chosen, how God predestined us, and through the love of Jesus, through the death of Jesus, that we, you know, we're forgiven of our sins, that we're made acceptable to God, all right, as justification, everything. And he, he, he goes through about how we've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has been given to us. He's the guarantee that eventually we're going to be with the Lord in heaven and be glorified. And uh, he, he goes um, about how we've been made alive in Jesus, like we were dead in trespasses and sins, and Jesus has made us alive and that, that Jesus is raised up above all principalities and powers, and that we're raised up with him. And, uh, and he, he talks about, you know, sort of like the love that Jesus has for us. He talks about the fact that we're God's workmanship, and there's all these good works that he prepared us for, you know, so that we can walk in them. And, and, and you get this, this incredible, uh, I mean, on the Bible survey, when we get to Ephesians, we'll see it in more detail. But the sort of like, you know, three three chapters uh, or, or, or kind of two and a bit, you know, sort of chapters of, of everything that God has done in Jesus and what that means for us. The truth about us in Jesus as Christians. 
which is quite simply this, we're raised up with Christ in heavenly places. What is true of him is true of us. So if you like, there you have the truth, the theory, the doctrine, the blueprint. This is what God has accomplished. You don't have to do a thing. This is true of you simply because you're a Christian. Having done that, then, from um, chapter 14, oh yeah, and, and he ends by dealing with the fact that we're all brought together in the church, and he deals with the corporate church and spiritual warfare in that sense, right? But then, from chapter 3, verse 14, through to the end of chapter 3, he then prays for the Ephesian church that they would have a revelation by the Holy Spirit of the truth of everything he's written to them so far. So stage one, all right, he's told them everything that is true because of what Jesus has done and because you're born again and you're in Jesus. He's given them, if you like, the theory, what is true. Then he prays that by the Holy Spirit they'll get a revelation. I mean, let's read verse 40. He says, For this reason I kneel before the Father, um, this will mean something to Dave because he's already had this today in his birthday card. Um, I kneel before the Father from whom the whole family in heaven and earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit and his inner man so that you may dwell in, in your hearts th through faith. And, and he says, I pray that being rooted and established in love, you may have the power together with all the saints, because you can't do it on your own, it's got to be in the context of fellowship, um, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. And he's praying, look, everything I've just written to you, now I'm praying that God will give you a revelation of it, that you'll realise the truth of it. It won't just be head knowledge, but the Holy Spirit will do something and that this truth will, as it were, illuminate you, you know, like a light bulb, it will light you up, that this truth will drop from the head into the heart and cause you to actually then to be obedient, okay? And, uh, and then from chapter 4 onwards, having gone through that bit, what, what tends to happen is that then he starts to deal with the practicalities of how, in the light of this, they ought to then be living. And he starts to deal with attitudes. He starts to deal with commitment. He starts to deal with serving the Lord in practical ways. And, uh, I mean, it comes down eventually to things like wives submit to your husbands as to the Lord. It comes down to things like husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. It comes down to things like submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. It involves children obeying their parents. It involves parents being good parents towards their children. And can you see, it comes down attitudes at work, slaves and masters, how you are at work. And that what happens then? having dealt with, as it were, the theory, everything that is true because of what Jesus has done, and then praying that you'll get revelation of this great truth, then Paul says, and this is how you work it out. And how do you work it out? Well, by being a good husband, by being a good employee, or if you're a boss, being a good boss, being a good kid, 
doing what mum and dad says. Can you see, it's the practical, nitty-gritty, working it out, day-to-day obedience, that is going to be the means whereby we grow in the Lord. That is what putting your foot down on every little bit of land means. That is the practicalities of it. So the point is, Paul, as it were, and in Philippians, he talks about this blatantly, he talks about everything that God has worked in, and then he says, right, work out your own salvation. He says, God has worked it all in. He did that when Jesus died on the cross, when he ascended into heaven. And of course, you were in Jesus when all that was happening. That's a mystery. We can't understand quite what that means. How could we have been in Jesus 2,000 years ago? But then he was out of time anyway. But Paul says, that's the truth. Get a revelation of that truth and then work it out. And it all boils down to things like doing the washing up. It it all boils down to things like forgiving people. It all boils down to things like going the extra mile for people. And that is how we work it out. Nothing, Nothing mystical. It's literally as simple as that. Putting your foot one step at a time, moving into the land. And so as we've seen, God says to Joshua about, you know, be, be obedient to everything in the book of the law. That's the first thing that we have to do. If, if you go to Colossians, and uh, in, in Colossians, you'll find exactly the same thing. In chapters 1 and 2, you get Paul going on about everything that God has done for us in Jesus and, and everything about Jesus, blah, 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 blah. And then in chapter 3, he changes tack, and, uh, and then from verse 1 onwards, he says, since then you have been raised with Christ. He says, right, everything I've just told you, oh, that's true. He says, therefore, because that's true, set your heart on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on things above, not earthly things, blah, blah, blah. And then he says, put to death, what belongs to your earthly nature? Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, blah, 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 blah. He says, you must get rid of all these things. He says, since you have taken off your own self and put on the new self. Now, what's he saying? He says, since you're, you know, now that you're Christians, take off that, that the filthy rags and put on the robe of righteousness. And it all boils down to, down to things like that. Not being angry with people. Not getting in fits of rages. Or if you do, confessing it, putting it right. It boils down to practical day-to-day Christian living. And that is always the way it works. And to the extent that we're, we're, we're reaching out in obedience in regards to those things and being in confession and repentance when we fail and sin, that is how, in practical terms, we will grow in holiness. We will grow in the Lord. And we will, as it were, come into the land and we will begin to experience freedom from the power of sin in our lives. And so it's simply this. It's knowing the truth and then, in the light of that truth, it's doing the truth. That is what growing in the Lord is all about. Being obedient to what the Bible actually says. Right, and the second thing that um, God says to Joshua in, in verse 8, is he says, Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Now, this, this is the second area where we've got to be doing our bit in, in, in growing. And uh, 
it's all to do with speaking the truth. It's, it's all to do with verbally expressing the truth. So we've seen behaviour, but now it quite specifically deals with our mouths. And this is important because, of course, Jesus said that uh, out, out of the, the mouth comes the heart. This is, this is the point, you know, I mean, King David, you know, said, Lord, put, put a guard over my lips, and, and we need that guard to be there. But it is important that the book of the law, that the scriptures doesn't depart from our mouths. That we're not just believing the truth and acting on it, but that as part of our acting on it, that we're verbally expressing it. That truth becomes part and parcel of our lives. And it's, it's interesting that in... In Old English, and you know, you get this in the Old King James Version, that um, the actual word conversation, all right, is, is used as the English translation for the Greek word behaviour. So that in the King James Version, the word conversation is synonymous with the word behaviour and also with the word citizenship. So that you've got this idea of how we ought to behave. Well, the key, you know, old English, that was conversation. Your conversation wasn't just how you spoke, it was how you lived. But your citizenship. And of course, in, you know, in the days of the British Empire, every, every Englishman represented England, didn't they? And so therefore, the way you lived was a statement about Britain. Therefore, citizenship was your conversation. Can you see? Your conversation was the way you lived. And that the idea here is that you are what you say. You know, that, that what is really in the heart is, is actually going to come out of the mouth. You know, I mean, it's like if, you know, sort of say that there's something and, uh, you know, that the Bible says and you're, you're doing it. Well, I mean, that's great. You're, you're obeying the Bible. But there are times when we can be doing that, but our mouths are actually giving us away because it's being done with, with, with maybe schneid grumbles coming out of our mouths. Can you see what I mean? Oh, well, I will do it, Oh, because it's expected of me. Can you see? That's, that was the problem with the Pharisees. They, they, at many points, were doing the Word of God, but their hearts were not one with what they're actually doing. And often it's what we say that is the giveaway there. I mean, we are what we say. Out of our mouths will come what the heart is, is, is full of. And so, therefore, it is important that we make sure that, as it were, the book of the law, the Scripture, uh, doesn't depart from our mouths. It's interesting that um, in Romans chapter 10, Paul actually says, confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you shall be saved. And that's interesting, isn't it? Our inclination would say, well, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, blah, 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 blah. blah. But Paul says, no, 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 not enough. Confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord. Because that confession with lips is the part of the outward proof that the believing in the heart is actually genuine. You know, because I mean, you know, we can kid ourselves about what's going on in our hearts. What comes out of our mouth settles what's going on in our hearts. This is why you don't have to be a mind reader to know where other believers are, isn't it? Just listen to them, you see. You know, I mean, we can, we can try and kid ourselves and other people, but our mouths always give us away. And, uh, you know, so, so therefore it's important that rather than speaking out of the old nature, that we're speaking out of the new nature, that, 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 that we're, we're speaking out of the truth of the Word of God. It's so easy, isn't it? I mean, you know, often there, there are times when, yes, it may look 
like God has let us down. It may look like that. When it does, what will be the difference between victory and defeat? What will be the difference between moving further in the land or the enemy pushing you back? All right? The difference will be whether we speak what the Word of God says, that God hasn't let us down, or whether we speak what it looks like and go against the Word of God and start saying, oh, God's let me down and God's rotten and blah, 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 blah. Can you see what I mean? Our speech has got to be of the Bible. Do not let the book of the law depart from your mouth. After all, in the beginning was the Word. And God is a talker. That's why we're talkers. It's his nature. God speaks. We speak. But my goodness, let's make sure we're speaking what the Lord is speaking rather than what Satan wants us to speak and uh, you know, what the world wants us to speak. And this is one of the reasons why there's so much emphasis in the Bible about, you know, for instance, let no filthy talk come out of your uh, mouths. Do not lie to one another. I mean, lying, untruth, is the exact opposite. You know, sort of like, you know, the opposite of the truth is deceit. And as Christians, we're to be growing in the truth. Uh, you know, rooting out all deceit in our lives. And, you know, and that when we find it there, bringing it to the Lord in confession. And then... Lastly, in verse 8, the, 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 the third bit of advice that the Lord gives to Joshua, he says, meditate on it day and night. Again, talking about the book of the law, the word of God. Meditate on it day and night. And of course, this is uh, talking, you know, the word meditate means chew the cud. That's what the word means. To regurgitate. When, when a cow chews the cud, it gets a bit of food in it chews it, swallows it, then it brings it back up and it chews it again, then it swallows it, gets a little bit more goodness, then bring it and chews it again. It's an ongoing chewing over something. And, uh, and what we're talking about here is the right use of our minds. Our minds, not we've seen our tongues. We've seen our bodies in how we behave, we've just seen our tongues in what we say. This is our minds. We've got to use our minds right. Doesn't mean we've all got to be Einsteins, we don't all have to be intellectual or anything like that, but it is good to get both brain cells together and to chew on the Word of God. Whatever we're going to chew on, let it be good things, let it be the Word of God that we're... So, right thinking is all important. If you go to Philippians, and um, Philippians, and find chapter 4, Philippians and chapter 4. Philippians 4 and verse 8. And uh, look what Paul says here. He says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. And then he says, whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. But there's a right use of our minds. And that what he's describing here is sort of like a grid in our minds. And that everything that comes into our minds, we, we feed through this grid. And as we feed it all through the grid, we're, we're filtering out like UV filters in sunglasses. 
we're filtering out the rubbish. We're going to filter out, as it were, the UV that comes from the world and from Satan, you know, the pollution of the world. It's going to come at us, but we simply filter it out. We're not frightened of it, we're not scared of it, but we simply filter it out so that the influence on our minds at the end of the day isn't the wrong things, it's the right things. And that everything that comes at it, we've got, as it were, this filter that's up based on the Word of God and all the rubbish we filter out completely. Uh, go to Romans 12. You see a, 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 similar, a similar idea here. And it's quite interesting, again here, because uh, what I was saying um, earlier, the pattern that Paul used when he wrote Ephesians and then Colossians, what you've basically got in, in Romans uh, chapter 1 to 8, you have the fullest, most systematic outline of the truth of the gospel anywhere in the Bible. You know, I, I mean, so, so, so Romans 1 to 8 deals with what salvation is all about. Then in, in chapters 9, 10 and 11, Paul, Paul deals with how this relates to Israel and how it relates to all the nations of the world. And that it, it deals with the sovereignty of God and his choices and, and how he's in control of all the nations and absolutely everything. So in many ways, in Romans, from chapter 1 to 11, again, you've got the theory, the truth of the gospel, you know, sort of like as it relates to, to various things, right? Then... In chapter 12, you get the pivotal verse. And now Paul starts to talk about how Christians behave. So that by the time you get to Romans chapter 13, he's saying, look, obey the civil authorities. You know, here's the truth of the gospel. Wow, that is so spiritual. Praise the Lord. Right, how do I grow in it? Well, obey the speed limit. Can you see how practical growing in the Lord is? This, this is what it all boils down to. And in Romans 12, look where he starts. He says, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. So he's saying you're dead, but you're alive. A sacrifice was killed. And he's saying, look, you're going to be living sacrifices. So he's saying, look, you're living dead things. Well, what does that mean? Well, you're alive to Christ, you're dead to the old nature. You're a living dead thing, you're a living sacrifice, all right? He says, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Now then, yes, we can, you know, praise the Lord and sing in choruses and praying, and that is all absolutely great, that's genuine worship. But if it's not undergirded by this living sacrifice, it, it, it can be very close to being so much humbug. All right, And then he goes on to saying, Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Saying, let, let the word of God, let God transform you by the renewing. And he says, then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. So there's your grid again. There's your, as it, you know, your filter that you filter out all the rubbish. But how do we do that? It's, it's this ongoing submission to the Lord and obedience to, to his word. And so here we're seeing meditating on God's truth, day and night, 
our minds surrendered to him and right use of our minds. It doesn't obviously mean that we've got to be actively thinking about things scriptural 24 hours a day. Of course not. It's not, it's not saying that. Every area of life, God is involved in with us. All right. But it means that in all our thinking, you know, I mean, like if you're at work, you're not meant to be at work all day thinking about the Lord. You're at work thinking about your work or whatever. But what this means is that you approach your work with a mind that's being renewed so that you're the worker that God wants you to be. Do you see what I mean? You're filtering out all the dodgy deals. You know, you're not taking the paper clips home at night. You're not, you know, kind of like, you know, slagging the boss off. Or it might not be the boss, you know, slagging that quiet bloke over in the corner. You're not slagging him off with the others. You're the nice guy. You're approachable. You'll do your job. But you won't be officious. You know, you won't be, you know, sort of like, uh, you know, lord and master to those who are underneath you. You'll, you'll, you'll be over them if that's your job. Yes, you'll, you'll, you know, tell them what to do if that's your job. But it will be with respect for them as human beings. Can you see? And, and, and so, therefore, in every situation we're in, it's applying a transformed mind so that all the time the rubbish is being filtered out and that it's the truth, it's the mind of Christ, as Paul says in Corinthians, that actually comes out of us. And that by, as it were, by thinking through the Bible, we can actually think through the mind of Jesus. Jesus lives in us. And therefore, Paul says, we have the mind of Christ. And so we need to be renewed in our minds so that, as it were, that's what is meant here by when God says to Joshua, meditate um, on the book of the law night and day. Chew it over, regurgitate it. Be active mentally. There's nothing passive about being a Christian. And uh, far from, you know, I mean, some Christians tend to think that laying your intellect and your thought processes aside is spiritual. You know, kind of bypass your mind and leave it to the Holy Spirit. That is not what the Bible says in any way at all. We must all the time be bringing our minds to bear on every situation we face and bringing the truth of the Word of God to bear on that situation. We need to be very active. Uh, God doesn't want us to be active above our mental level. You know, I mean, if it's beyond you to struggle with the mysteries of predestination, then don't struggle with the mysteries of predestination. Just accept it because the Bible says it. And accept that we've got free will as well because the Bible says it. And don't bother about the fact that they don't seem to tie up. You don't have to be mentally more than you are. I mean, God, God hasn't called me to be a marathon runner. just hasn't given me the right physique. You know, so I mean, the point is, don't think that in this renewing of your minds that we've all got to become budding Einsteins. We don't. We don't have to all be Bible teachers or, or deep Christian thinkers in, in any philosophical sense. But we've got to apply our minds to the full. Right, okay, so, so that is, is all what God has said to Joshua, right? He said, go in, take the land, this is how you do it. It's all there for the taking. And now... Back to chapter 1, and uh, from verse 10, now we see what Joshua said to the people. So God has spoken to him, now Joshua is going to speak to the people. So find verse 10. So Joshua ordered the officers of the people, go through the camp, 
and tell the people, get your supplies ready. Three days from now, you will cross the Jordan here to go in and take possession of the land the Lord your God is giving you for your own. But to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joshua said, Remember the command that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you. The Lord your God is giving you rest and has granted you this land. Your wives, your children, and your livestock may stay in the land that Moses gave you east of the Jordan, but all your fighting men, fully armed, must cross over ahead of your brothers. You are to help your brothers until the Lord gives them rest, as he has done for you, and until they too have taken possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving them. After that, you may go back and occupy your land, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you east of the Jordan towards the sunrise. I'll, I'll explain that in one moment. But now Joshua speaks to the people. Again, we saw this right at the beginning of the talk tonight. He didn't speak to the people until God had spoken to him first. Now we're back to that pattern. That is the essence of leadership in the church as far as the Lord is concerned. Um, you, leadership is leading people into where you have already been with the Lord. You can't lead other people where you yourself haven't been. Do you remember with Moses? Um, you know, sort of like he spent 40 years in the wilderness as a shepherd. And then it transpired that that was the same wilderness that he was then going to lead Israel through for the next 40 years. He could lead them through the wilderness because he'd been there himself. You can only lead others where you yourself has been. And that's important with leadership in the church. Now, it doesn't, it doesn't mean that a leader has to have experienced fully everything that God has on offer. Well, of course not. That would be leaders are growing in the Lord themselves as well. Of course they are. But it does mean that substantially they're ahead of those that they're leading in the sense that, 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 that they're bringing them through situations that they've, as it were, already faced and have been in with the Lord. And so the point is, you can only pass on, as it were, to other people what you yourself has received um, from the Lord. And we see that here with Joshua. And, uh, you know, I mean, it's no use trying to lead people or disciple people if it's purely head knowledge. Um, you know, because at the end of the day, we saw that verse just um, a few moments ago, didn't we, where Paul says, in, you know, in Philippians, whatever you've heard and seen in me, that do. Because the point is, it's no use being a leader in a church if your teaching is one thing, but your life is another. So, you know, but the point, you know, it's no use, as it were, being absolutely brilliant at doing Bible studies on how important it is to forgive people. It's no use doing that whatsoever if the people in the church know full well that over the years they've known you, they know that you have a job forgiving people and that you don't forgive people. I mean, your life has got to fundamentally be living up to what you're passing on to. You know, so that a leader within reason, I mean, not about leaders being perfect, I mean, no one is sinless, but Paul said, whatever you've heard and seen in me, that do. So can you see the point? 
you can't you can't lead people into places if 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 you're not actually you know sort of like close to the Lord to whatever extent in those areas yourself. Like you can't teach other people to forgive those who sin against them if you don't forgive those who sin against you. You know, I mean, it's no use you know sort of like teaching you know people what the Bible says about peace, for instance. I mean, if you're flying off the end all the time. You know, I mean, you, you just couldn't be taken seriously as a leader, could you? And <clears throat> indeed, fits of rage flying off the handle is one of the things in Paul's teaching that prohibits someone being a leader in the church. So, what we're seeing here is that for leadership, you've got to make sure that the order is right. You can only lead others where you yourself was been. And in verses 10 to 11, what he says to them, he encourages the people. <coughs> He says, right, three days from now, we're going in to take the land. Boom, boom. It's there. It's there for the taking. Now then, what's happened? God has encouraged him. There you are, Joshua. It's all there. Go and take it. So Joshua now encourages the people. Look, it's all there. We're going to go and take it. He passed it on down the line. Now, God <coughs> is a God of encouragement. So therefore, if God is a God of encouragement, and, you know, I mean, we, we saw, I mean, the number of times that, you know, God said to Joshua, you know, be strong and courageous, don't be terrified, you know, be brave, be strong, you know, that could be bold, be strong, for the Lord thy God is with thee. That's encouragement. God's like that. He's an encouraging God. Therefore, Christians ought to be encouraging people. I mean, it's no use having a kind of, you know, sort of like, you know, we're doomed, Mr. Mannering, doomed, you know, in Dad's army, that Scottish bloke. You know, sort of like, Mr. Manning, you know. Oh, it's not a very good impersonation of him. But you, that's the one, that's the axe, that's the one I was trying for, yes. And, you know, sort of like, if, 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 if you pass that on, <coughs> people are going to be despairing, people are going to be discouraged. But Joshua, he encourages the people. What you say spreads, and definitely what leaders say spreads. So you can, you know, you, you, you can talk faith and encouragement, and that will spread. <coughs> Excuse me. Or you can spread unbelief and doubt, and moans and groans. Well, that's 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 no good. Um, we saw in in doing the Bible survey the rule that the um that the Israelite army had that uh, before a battle, if if there were people who were too frightened and you know kind of passing on despair and stuff like that, and uh, were convinced that they were going to lose, they were sent home. You know, so that if people have really bad morale, the leaders in the army said, well, I'll tell you what, go home, because, I mean, just the way you're holding your spear is enough to get us all down, mate. You go home, we really don't need you, you know. I mean, give me one, give me one soldier who's trusting the Lord and willing to fight, rather than a hundred who are just there. I mean, your knees might be knocking, your knees might be knocking, you might have fear, but you're trusting the Lord. You're overcoming the fear because you're trying. You feel the fear. You feel the, you know, the trepidation. But you're a warrior and you're trusting the Lord. But if it's, uh, you know, sort of like a we're doomed, Mr. Mannering scenario, then it's far better that you go home because unbelief and doubt will spread the same as faith and encouragement will spread. And of course, we've got to make sure that it's faith and encouragement that we spread. And um, and then you get this bit that uh, Joshua then addresses this um, the thing with the the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half tribe of Manasseh, and again you'll remember when we did the Bible survey in the Old Testament, 
that um, as they ended the wanderings in the wilderness for the 40 years, uh, where they're settled at the moment, you know, where this is actually taking place, this was like, as it were, the wrong side of the Jordan. They were going to go across the Jordan into the Promised Land. This is like the other side. So it's virtually the verge of the wilderness, just where the wilderness meets the extremities of, um, of Canaan. And um, the tribe of Reuben and Gad and half of the tribe of Manasseh, what they thought is they said, hey, this is really nice here. And they, they sort of thought, this is great. You know, we could really do something with this. And what they did is they approached Moses and they said, look, Moses, could we have the, the land this side of the Jordan? <coughs> Rather than going over, can we have it here? Because it's really nice. And what Moses agreed with them is that they could do that, no problem. But that it did rather look as if they were just wanting to get out of having to fight the war in Canaan. Can you see what I mean? We'll stay here because it's easy. No warfare here. And so in the light of that, what Moses arranged with them, he said, look, you have this land here, no problem, but you can only, I mean, set your wives and your children and all your flocks up in it, but when the battle for Canaan goes on, you have got to be in there fighting the battle. And you can only go back or come back to this bit of the land when you finish the battle with the other tribes to get the main block of Canaan. And that was the arrangement that Moses said. So these two and a half tribes, they wanted to stay, as it were, technically the wrong side of Jordan. And, uh, and, and Moses agreed and said, yes, you can. That's no problem. But the warfare, the other side of the Jordan, you've got to play your part in that first. And then it wasn't a skive. Can you see it? Could, just in case they were after, well, I mean, I'll have the easy bit and then we won't have to fight. And so what you've got here, and again, this is, this is, you know, very much part of leadership, is that Joshua holds them to the deal they made with Moses. So the fact that Moses was dead wasn't going to get them out of their agreement. I mean, they, you know, I mean, there's no indication they wanted to get out of the agreement. They, they were quite happy. But the point is, Joshua had to hold them to the agreement and to make sure that they realised that even though Moses was gone, their men were still going into the affray uh, across the Jordan into Canaan. And so it's important that leadership is there. I mean, certainly to encourage and to bring people on, yes. But also there's a duty on leadership to make sure that everyone is pulling their weight. Joshua wasn't going to let these guys get out of their responsibility. No indication that they wanted to, but there was the chance. And so Joshua was straight in there, making sure that they knew that the arrangement still held good. And so leaders have got to make sure that everyone's pulling their weight. Now, you mustn't expect people to pull more weight than God's given them grace for. You know, I mean, you don't, you don't expect a, a little donkey to bear the same load as a whacking great big camel. And uh, we're all different. But the point is, to the extent of the grace that God has given us, weaker brothers and all, it's the job of leadership to make sure that everyone is pulling their weight. Because there's the danger that if people aren't, they're dragging others down. And that's not on. And so therefore, here we're seeing 
He's encouraged the people, and that's absolutely right. He began with that. God began by encouraging him. Look, Joshua, here it is. Go and get it. I've given it to you. Now, here's what I expect of you. See? Because again, in the covenant series, we saw that with a royal grant, in a covenant like that, although you got it for nothing, it was a free gift, once you entered into it, it gave you responsibilities. You know, you got into this new bit of land, and you've got a new bit of land to look after. So the point is, God is saying to Joshua, look, okay, it's there, it's a free gift. And these are your responsibilities, and I expect you to keep them. So that was the order that God worked in Joshua. And now Joshua, he's encouraged, he says, look, it's all there. He's encouraged them, he's built them up. And then he said, but this is what I expect of you. After all, we're disciples. That's part of what leadership is there to do. So it's to encourage and build up but also to make sure that people are moving along, following the Lord, and pulling their weight, as it were. There's a corporate responsibility, and the tribes of Reuben and Gad and, and, and half of the tribe of Manasseh, even though they were going to settle that side of the Jordan, nevertheless they still had a corporate responsibility to be with the rest of the tribes in the thick of the fight, the other side of uh, Jordan in Canaan. Right, and then lastly, and we're, we're, we're drawing to the close of, um, the close of chapter 1, we've, we've now got what the people said to Joshua. And uh, this is just verse 16 and the last three verses. Then they answered Joshua, Whatever you have commanded us, we will do. And wherever you send us, we will go. Just as we fully obeyed Moses, so we will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. Whoever rebels against your word and does not obey your words, whatever you may command them will be put to death. Only be strong and courageous. Now this is right response to leadership. God has spoken to Joshua. Joshua has then spoken to the people. Now the people respond to Joshua. And they quite rightly pledge their obedience to him. Submit to your leaders, all right? But there's another side to that, and this is vitally important. Do you notice that they say, only may the Lord be with you as he was with Moses? Now this is tremendously important. Their obedience to Joshua as their leader is going to be conditional on him actually being obedient to the Lord himself. So what they're saying is, Joshua, you have our loyalty, we will submit to you, but only insofar as we know that you yourself are submitting to the Lord. And that is the essence of submission to leadership within the church. There is no unconditional submission to leadership in the Bible, except the leadership of Jesus himself. We are all unconditionally surrendered to Jesus. Whatever he says goes. But when it comes to leadership in the church, as indeed leaderships, you know, in a civil sense, the government, you submit as long as it doesn't go against what God himself wants. And so what we've got here is that the people understanding properly. 
Joshua expects them to follow because he is the leader. But the people expect Joshua to lead them properly. And that's the right way. Can you see? Um, I've often said before that my three main sources of inspiration for Bible teaching is firstly the Bible, secondly Star Trek, and thirdly Blake 7. And uh, there's, there's a really brilliant bit in Blake 7 that illustrates this so well. And uh, you'll remember that um, in, in, in Blake's crew, because Blake was the leader, wasn't he, in, on you know, the spaceship, he was like the captain, and they were a rebel band, weren't they, you know, fighting against the Federation and all that. And uh, two of the crew, there was Avon. Now, Avon was a very powerful, smooth, arrogant, you know, he was actually a safe cracker. He was a gentleman thief, wasn't he? But he, he was a real leader himself. And then there was Villa, and Villa, he was a sneak thief. And although his heart was in the right place, he was a bit of a coward, all right? And that these two, they had a love-hate relationship, and all the way through the series, they were always goading each other, you see. And of course, the biggest cross that Avon had to bear was that Blake was the leader and not him, all right? Because Avon wanted, you know, he felt he should be the leader, but he knew that Blake was, and, and that, that was the hardest thing for him. And he would often be really rotten to Villa, but Villa would take any chance to be rotten. You know, they used to bicker, all right. And uh, there was one occasion when Villa was having a go at Avon and just reminding him that Blake was in charge and not Avon, you know, and that all of them were sort of like under Blake, as it were. And, and Avon's response is absolutely brilliant because what he says to Villa he says, yes, and this is so typical of an Avon comment, you know, and Villa grinds him into the ground. And he says to Villa, yes, but the difference is, you're, um, hang on a sec, yeah, he said, the difference between you and me is that you're being led, but I've decided to follow. And can you see the difference there? And that should be true of us as Christians. It shouldn't be that we're being led by leadership, just passively we decide to follow because we acknowledge actively that it is the leadership that God has put there. So the point is Avon was right. You know, Villa was being a little bit weaselly there. You know, well, I mean, we're all under Blake. And Avon says, yeah, but you're just being led. I've decided to follow. And that was Avon's integrity in the situation. And he was actually quite right in, you know, in, in saying that. And in churches or whatever it is, don't be led, but test the leadership and if the leadership passes the test, then decide to follow. That's tremendously important. So there's a conditional submission to leadership, but there does need to be the right attitude of uh, you know, submission to leadership as long as the leadership is proving itself in an ongoing way to be godly and biblical leadership. And notice as well that they encourage Joshua. They say, only be strong and be courageous. And so they commit themselves to him, all right, but they encourage him. And I mean, you know, Joshua's just a man. Leaders in the church are ju just men. They need that as well, the same as anyone else. And uh, they get down, they can be unsure of themselves, blah, blah, blah. So it's good to encourage leader. We're not talking about bootlicking. We're not talking about being yes-men, you know, kowtowing around leaders in the church. Oh, yes, or bowing and scraping. Not what we're talking about at all. 
you know, it's important that if a leader maybe just needs correcting, that you're free to correct that. That's right. That's absolutely right and proper. You know, but don't forget to encourage. Joshua needed it. We all need it. And so what we saw was that God encouraged Joshua, then Joshua encouraged the people, and then the people encouraged Joshua back. And when you've got that situation working amongst God's people, then you really do have a, a wonderful setup and all the channels are open for God to move and to have his way among his people. Right, next time we move on to um, a spy story under the spying out of the land.